Let's just have another word of prayer before we get into God's word, okay? Heavenly Father, we want to come before you and just thank you that you are the everlasting Father, the creator of heaven and earth. Nothing is too difficult for you. And Lord, we thank you too that uh, you are able to make, as it says in the Old Testament, uh, roadways in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Um, And when I read that and I think about that, Lord, we just think about how you're able to do anything. That uh, you can make a way where there seems no way. And so, Lord, we are just thankful that you are that way. And we worship you and praise you because you are that way. And so, Lord, we also want to lift up our friends, our family, our brothers and sisters in Christ who may be sick right now. They might be struggling with a physical illness. We pray for healing for them. We also just pray for those that are struggling with mental health. I know this is a really tough time for people. People are really struggling uh, with with mental health right now. And so we pray, Lord, for relief for them. We pray that they would find their hope in you and even those believers that are struggling because we know this is not something that is just uh, we're immune to as believers. Lord, um, help us if we're struggling uh, with depression or something to just that you would meet us there. We would cling to you uh, and, uh, and not let go. And Lord, we also just pray that this time in your word would bear fruit, that it would uh, exalt you. And I pray, Lord, that uh, my words would, would be faithful to the scriptures and would be true to you. And pray, Lord, for the kingdom impact. We pray for your Holy Spirit to be working on each and every one of us today, those here in person and those online. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We are in the book of Daniel, again, in chapter 8 today. Chapter 8, I was thinking about this, like if you compare chapter 7 to um, chapter 8, it's like this. Some of you have a phone that you can take a panoramic picture, I think, where, you know, you start off here, and then you, if you press panoramic, you just keep scanning, you know, and you try to keep steady, and then when you get all the way over here, about 180 degrees, it makes this nice, long panoramic picture for you. And you could do this before the digital age, by the way, okay? They had cameras that could do that. And um, I think of chapter 7... Uh, of Daniel as being like the panoramic picture. We see a lot of uh, things that were prophesied there in Daniel chapter 7 that, uh, as the Lord gave him in the vision, were things that were more immediate to their time frame. But then some also, some things that were mentioned there, there was mentioned, remember the little mouthy horn, the little horn that had a big mouth on it, <laughs> that was literally and figuratively had a mouth on it? Um, that is, and I didn't mention this, that really is uh, symbolic of the Antichrist, okay? And, and so uh, a large swath of time was covered in that vision, right? Uh, and so that's why I think of that as the panorama of different events in history, culminating with the end of time as we know it. Um, but, but now here in chapter 8, what's going to happen is we're going to take a couple of snapshots within the panorama, okay? And that's how I think chapter 8 fits into chapter 7. And so, um, 
And if you follow along with our notes uh, online, you can go to our website, darbycreek.org, click on Sermon Notes. It'll open up the YouVersion Bible app. Or just take notes uh, uh, yourself and follow along in your, own, in your own Bible, however you read the Scriptures here. Um, I've chosen today uh, to, um, to, 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 to teach this in a different way than I did the last chapter. I'm going to, because there's three kind of key elements or key imagery going on in this vision that Daniel has. So what I'm going to do is we're going to look at the vision of each of the images and kind of like scroll down in the passage and look at the interpretation of that image. So it's almost like kind of a, you get the image and we're going to get the interpretation and put them together. I think that's, a, in my opinion, just a, a, a good way maybe to kind of make sure we're getting the correlation rather than getting all the imagery and then all the interpretation, which is fine, but just a different way to do it. So, um, this, uh, we're entitling this message here today, uh, Prophecy in History. Prophecy in History. And you'll, you'll see why, as we get into this, why I'm calling it this. Because to Daniel, uh, in this particular vision, it was prophecy. To us, depending on how you view one of the images, um, all, that's, all that's prophesied there has already happened in this particular chapter. Okay? Um, We'll unveil more on that as we go along. So, um, but anyway, that's the title here. The first uh, piece of imagery we get in the vision here is in verses 1 to 4. So let's read those. Daniel chapter 8 uh, in verses 1 to 4. It says, During the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision, following the one that had already appeared to me. Now, you know, it's always interesting to kind of make note of the times, right, compared to the last chapter. Last chapter, you know what it said? It was that it was the first year of Belshazzar's reign, so this is the third year. So two years have passed since the first vision, okay? Two years have passed, and it says, In this vision I was at the fortress of Susa in the province of Elam, standing beside the Ulai River. So you get this imagery. He's, he's in a city of Susa. Does anybody remember that, that city has come up before? even during a series that we did during this pandemic. Does anybody remember where this was taking place and what book of the Bible? Esther. Esther, right? Esther, right, occurred during the Persian Empire, right? And, and this city of Susa was mentioned in that same book. And so uh, just to kind of relate it to something that we know or have gone over recently. Now, so here's the vision. Verse 3, as I looked up, Daniel says, I saw a ram with two long horns, Standing beside the river, one of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had grown later than the other one. All right, so you got this ram with two horns beside the river. What's it doing? Okay, here, verse 4. The ram butted everything out of its way to the west, to the north, to the south, and no one could stand against him or help his victims. He did as he pleased and became very great. So, so there is the imagery in the first uh, part of the vision. Now let's go to verse 15 to see the interpretation of that part of the vision. All right, so verse 15, as I, Daniel, was trying to understand the meaning of this vision, someone who looked like a man stood in front of me. And I heard a human voice calling out from the Ulai River, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of his vision. As Gabriel approached the place where I was standing, I became so terrified that I fell with my face to the ground. 
Son of man, he said, you must understand that the events you have seen in your vision relate to the time of the end. While he was speaking, I fainted and lay there with my face to the ground. But Gabriel roused me with a touch and helped me to my feet. <clears throat> then he said to me, then he said, I am here to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. What you have seen pertains to the very end of time. The two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. Stop right there. We, have, we now know what the two-horned ram represents, right? The very last verse there, verse 20, the two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. That's what it represents, the, 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 the Medes and the Persians, right? That king, kingdom reign, that time frame. And so that's what that represents. So we don't have to speculate. We don't have to wonder. We know what that represents, Right? In some of these visions, uh, you try to make your best uh, educated biblical understanding, right? Uh, and, it's not, and there may be uh, variations on what it could mean, but I think this is obvious. It tells us what it is, right? Okay, so, so here we're just going to say the ram with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia, just like the scripture said. All right, now on to the next imagery, the goat with the horn between his eyes. All right, now let's look in verse 5. So we ended in verse 4 the last time with the, where it gives the vision. Now we're in verse 5. While I was watching, suddenly a male goat appeared from the west, crossing the land so swiftly that he didn't even touch the ground. This goat, which had one very large horn between his eyes, headed toward the two-horned ram that I had seen standing beside the river, rushing at him in a rage. So you got this goat with one horn right here, right? And he's rushing towards the ram that we just read about. The goat, verse 7, says, The goat charged furiously at the ram and struck him, breaking off both his horns. Now the ram was helpless, and the goat knocked him down and trampled him. No one could rescue the ram from the goat's power. And then in verse 8, The goat became very powerful, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. In the large horn's place grew four prominent horns pointing in the four directions of the earth. So that's the part of the vision about this second imagery about the goat. All right, And so let's take a look at the interpretation in verses 21 and 22 of that piece of the vision. Verse 21. The shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes represents the first king of the Greek empire. The four prominent horns that replace the one large horn show that the Greek empire will break into four kingdoms, but none as great as the first. So this is kind of cool. We know exactly what that goat represents, right? The kingdom of Greece. And the big horn in the center of the goat's head represents the first Greek king. Anybody know who that is? Alexander the Great, okay, Alexander the Great, first great king of Greece. All right, so here we get some definition. The goat with the horn between his eyes represents the Greek empire. The large horn is Alexander the Great, okay? And then how it gives us this imagery of the one horn being displaced, right, and, and four more coming out, right, uh, as, it, as it said here, the Greek empire will break into four kingdoms. It says that in the scriptures in verse 22, History tells us that four generals after Alexander the Great died took over the kingdom. The four generals divided the kingdom up. And so this is history. 
All right, it, it happened, okay? And when Daniel's writing it, it hadn't happened, okay? Um, but that's, I just think this is so cool. We're actually able to look back here and you can make historical, verifiable uh, markers that the scriptures point us to. All right, so there we have that second main piece of the imagery. Now let's look at the third one, and it's a little horn again. Okay, there's something with these little horns in Daniel. Last week, the little horn, uh, remember, had a mouth on it and also was very mouthy, right, and boastful towards God. And that horn, now that horn, uh, as I see it, represented the Antichrist, capital A, the final one, okay? I say the final one, and that may seem, sound strange to some of you, but in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, it says many Antichrists will come, okay? So there will be, and by the way, I, I think that probably most of these Antichrists have a lot of the same characteristics, maniacal leaders, powerful, uh, great deceivers, um, destructive, uh, you know, your basic maniacal leader uh, and power-hungry person. And so, um, so anyway, the little horn in chapter 7, I think is clearly the final Antichrist, in, in my opinion. This little horn, and I'll, I'll just say, in my opinion, I'm saying my opinion because there are, are probably two different ways to look at this. I think both will mesh with Scripture depending on how you look at it. I think... <clears throat> this little horn here, uh, well, let's just get, let's read it first. I'm getting ahead of myself, sorry. Let's go, let's go read about the little horn, verse 9. So verse 9 says, Then from one of the prominent horns, so we're talking of the four horns that came out, right, and replaced that one big one in the goat, says, Then from one of the prominent horns came a small horn whose power grew very great. It extended toward the south and the east and toward the glorious land of Israel, its power reached to the heavens where it attacked the heavenly army, throwing some of the heavenly beings and some of the stars to the ground and trampling them. It even challenged the commander of heaven's army by, by canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him and by destroying his temple. Do you see this, how temple worship will be disrupted and stopped and prevented, right? And then it says in verse 12, the army of heaven was restrained from responding to this rebellion, so the daily sacrifice was halted and truth was overthrown. The horn succeeded in everything it did. And then in verse 13, it says, Then I heard two holy ones talking to each other. One of them asked, How long, <clears throat> excuse me, how long will the events of this vision last? How long will the rebellion that causes desecration, stop the daily sacrifices. How long will the temple and heaven's armies be trampled upon? The other replied, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the temple will be made right again. So uh, that's the, the imagery involving the, the, the one uh, horn, the little horn that was prominent amongst those other horns. Now let's go to verse 23 to the end of the chapter to read about the interpretation for this horn. Um, verse 23, at the end of their rule, when their sin is at its height, a fierce king, a master of intrigue will rise to power. This is that little horn. Okay? He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause a shocking amount of destruction and succeed in everything he does. He will destroy 
powerful leaders and devastate the holy people, you know, attack the people of God, devastate them, right? Verse 25, he will be a master of deception and will become arrogant. He will destroy many things without warning. He will even take on the prince of princes in battle, but he will be broken, though not by human power. This vision about the 2,300 evenings and mornings is true, but none of these things will happen for a long time, so keep this vision a secret. Verse 27, then I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for several days. Afterward, I got up to perform many duties for the king, but I was greatly troubled by the vision and could not understand it. Okay? So that is the, um, the little horn and the description of it. Now, let me give you my take on this, okay? I'm not going to go to the wall on this one, but I, I feel like there's, good, there's, good, there's some good arguments on both sides of this, this, and this is what I mean. I think that the little horn represents a figure that has already existed, okay? Uh, Antiochus of Epiphanes, all right, and is well-known in history. He actually desecrated the temple. He sacrificed a pig on the altar, of, and he stopped the worship there. I'm going to read to you some things about him in a minute that are just atrocious, okay? Uh, in fact, let me just read that now. Now, some people think that, you know, this is really the the, the Antichrist with a capital A, it could be. Uh, that could also mesh with some other things as well. But I'm just saying I think there's a couple of different ways to take this. But I'm kind of taking this as this is someone that has already existed um, because this has, these things that have been mentioned have happened. Um, all right, so let me read to you from, ironically, Sinclair Ferguson's commentary. <laughs> Since I messed his name up earlier, he has a commentary on Daniel. And I, I just wanted to read a little bit about Antiochus Epiphanes, this guy who I say may be this person represented by the one horn, this, this great leader that came out of one of the four uh, generals um, that, that uh, split up the kingdom there of Greece. So he says in his commentary, when then, what then of Antiochus? He came to power in 175 B.C., okay, so... Remember, Daniel's written somewhere around 500-ish B.C., is representing around 500-ish B.C. Antiochus Epiphanes, roughly 400 years later, okay, uh, he is uh, um, in power and exercising his power in different ways, okay. It says, he is succeeding his brother, Seleucius uh, Philopater. He was, in fact, Antiochus IV. Epiphanes was a blasphemous title he arrogated to himself Later in his reign, listen to this title he gave himself, Theos Antiochus Epiphanes, meaning the illustrious God. He proclaimed himself to be the illustrious God, okay? Although others called him Epimenus, meaning the madman. <laughs> they probably said that under their breath, though, I think. Um, Power-hungry, Antiochus sought to expand his dominion to include Palestine, okay? This brought him into conflict with the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt. In Jerusalem, he replaced the high priest. Okay, so now you got to think, the, go back to the sacrificial system. It says, Antiochus in Jerusalem replaced the high priest with his own guy, with his own person, okay, which would have been a desecrating enough to have someone that wasn't of the line of the priesthood to do this. He then invaded Egypt, and while there, there was a rumor over his death that circulated, and then efforts were made to reinstate the genuine priest, so they, they kind of heard a rumor that he had died, okay, but he really hadn't. 
And so the Jews are like, we're going to put our own guy back in there, right? God's people said, we're going to do that. But um, Antiochus accused the people of rebellion. Oh, you got to take my guy out of there. He accused them of rebellion, so guess what happened? He attacked, savagely attacked, I might say, Jerusalem, and executed tens of thousands of its inhabitants, uh, 40,000 apparently dying within the space of three days. 40,000 dead in three days, history tells us. Again, this, these are historical facts, okay? And so then he entered, listen to this. So this gets to the, this gets to the uh, um, desecrating the temple aspect of the vision. It says, he entered the holy of holies in the temple, Antiochus Epiphanes did, sacrificed a pig on the altar of burning burnt offering, defiled the temple precincts, took the sacred furniture and established a traitor as his own high priest again. And so there you have that. And then as it goes on, um, and this is where this kind of dovetails with other parts of history with Antiochus Epiphanes uh, being in power and executing all kinds of evil um, upon God's people and in Jerusalem particularly. Um, So you've heard of Hanukkah, I'm assuming, right? And Hanukkah is a celebration of lights. Uh, when, when the, basically the, the, the rededication of the temple, okay? Well, that would have happened after, uh, as is recorded in one of the apocryphal books, okay? The apocryphal books have some history in them, but they're not included in at least the Protestant Bible as, as Scripture. But some history in there tells us in the book of First Maccabees that uh, what I will read you next. It says, it was in this context, in other words, in this time period, that Judas... Maccabeus, Judas Maccabeus and his followers began their nationalist exploits. Antiochus Epiphanes died under mysterious circumstances while returning from Persia. He contracted an exceedingly painful disease, which, accorded, uh, which according to the account of 1 Maccabees, so this is in 1 Maccabees, was, an, was accompanied by deep and unmitigated psychological anguish. All right, so, so if you read about... Uh, Judas Maccabeus, and you see there was a revolt to, to, you know, to prevent all that was going. There was a, a battle going on there, and many believers died. And so I don't think it's any stretch at all to say that this one little horn could be uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? Um, and especially because he desecrated the temple, just like, you know, this is saying to us. Now, it could be. The Antichrist with a capital A. It could be, okay? Um, so many times, uh, a lot of times in prophecy, we have an initial fulfillment and then like a, a final fulfillment, okay? So it's possible that this, that Antiochus Epiphanes could be a type of Antichrist, but not the one with a capital A, you know, obviously. And so I'm just saying that maybe there's a double fulfillment here from this passage where you know, it looks like that, that, you know, it's possible that one interpretation is that it looks like this, this is talking about, uh, you know, that, but maybe it's talking about the end. Uh, again, this, this third imagery, the little horn, I'm not going to go to the wall for my thoughts, but I, there's a lot of commentators that would agree with me on it. Um, and, uh, I'm, you know, I just think there's good reason to think that he, this is a historical figure. It all has already happened. Um, so anyway, um, those are, those are my thoughts on that. But, there are, this leaves us with some questions, though, at least left me with some questions in the passage. Because you've got these imageries. You've got the ram. You've got the goat. You've got the little horn. 
But then you've got some mentioning of some time periods. And then you've got some, uh, you know, and what does it mean about, what, what does it talk about the end? Is it the end of the end of time? Or is it the end of this particular, um, of this particular oppression and persecution that he's mentioning here with Daniel and his friends or what? And so let me get to the mention of the verses there where it talks about how long. Because you remember when it mentioned that there was 2,300 days, right? When those angelic beings, the one asked the other, how long is this going to go on? How long are God's people going to be persecuted? How long is this going to happen, right? And he said 2,300 evenings and mornings, okay? Now, there's two ways to think about that. Maybe there's more than two, but there's two that became obvious to me. One is it could be literal days, Morning and evening is a day, right? Others also think that it could be, since it's in light of talking about the sacrificial system, that it maybe it's 2,300 morning and evening sacrifices, okay? That's another way to view that time period, okay? I know this is a lot of information here. We're kind of dumping on you, but think about this. Um, if this is talking about, if this is talking about uh, the little horn being Antiochus Epiphanes, and it's already happened, we know what that time frame was, okay? And either one of those interpretations of the 2,300 days, whether they're literal days or morning and evening sacrifices, fits within the time period of his uh, onslaught of God's people. Uh, for example, if you go with, um, I'll just read you what Sinclair Ferguson said. He says, um, if, it is ref- if the reference is to literal days, then its fulfillment would cover the whole period of Antiochus's blasphemous activities. In other words, it would fit within the time frame of all of Antiochus Epiphanes' blasphemous activities, those 2,300 days, okay? That would fit. Um, Then it says, if the reference is to the evening and morning sacrifices, 2,300 morning and evening sacrifices, that would be like 1,500 days, okay? Then the period envisioned is a shorter time of three and a half years, which would be the period between the desecration of the temple by the statue of Zeus, because he went in there, and not only did he desecrate it with putting a pig on the altar, but he put the statue of Zeus right there on the altar of God. So between the time he actually put that statue there and the end of, uh, and, when the, and, the, and when the temple was ultimately cleansed, it's three and a half years. So if you see this little horn as Antiochus Epiphanes, it fits both of those time frames, okay? Um, and again, there are other interpretations that they think that this is the, the, the end of all times and everything, and, 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 and then, you know, once we start digging into that, you get in a lot of charts and timelines, there's a lot of differences of opinions on those sorts of things. But um, anyway, those are the things I think we can, we, can, uh, we can talk about with a great degree of confidence here. Now, what about uh, um, not only the how long, but what about when it mentions the end? In verses 17 and 19... In verse 17, it says, uh, Gabriel says, by the way, who's Gabriel? An angel, right? He's an angel. He, you know, he's, been, he's dispatched a number of times in the, in the scriptures, and every time somebody has an encounter with him, typically they're falling on their face, fearing of their lives. So what's that tell you about angels? They're not little cherubs, okay? <laughs> they're angelic beings that are very frightening in a sense that, you know, their appearance or their... They, they, you know, you'd be frightened if you saw one, you know, typically. However, as often as the case in the scriptures, the angels say, you know, fear not, you know, 
You know, that's always a good thing to hear from an angel, fear not, you know. <laughs> uh, and so, so he says, son of man, you must understand, this is verse 17, you must understand that the events that you have seen in your vision relate to the time of the end, to the time of the end. And then in another place, um, it says here in verse 19, I am here to tell you what will happen later in the time of the wrath. What you have seen pertains to the very end of time. Now, so there's different takes on this, even though in the version I just read, it's the very end of time. There's, uh, one take would be that it actually is the actual end of time. One take would be is it's the time of, these, uh, of the persecution of the time Antiochus of Epiphanes, okay? That, that that particular persecution that Daniel and his friends uh, and all those that would come in 400 years later there in Jerusalem would experience, and that that, that, that is the, um, the end of that wrath. Because you could when you read that first rendition, it says, relate to the time of the end. It could be the time of the end of this particular wrath here that's going on, or it could be the end of the time. And there's, just, again, just differences of opinions there. Um, if you stick with that the little horn is Antiochus of Epiphanes, then you kind of have to say what must be the end of that wrath, of that time, right? And it could be. Um, so different ways to look at that. But it's, it's, just, it's a good thing to, if you're interested in studying, I'm sure you can find all kinds of stuff about it. Um, but, but I think for us, we, you, you can kind of get lost in the weeds on this, right? I, I've done a lot of information dump today um, on, on some things, but, but this was written. This entire book, and we've got to keep, keep in mind why the book of Daniel is written, right, is that God is trying to communicate to his people and to us even now, right, that despite appearances, despite that these people in Daniel's time were in exile, right, despite appearances, God was in control, and he wants his people to live faithfully where they are, right where he has them. And that's true for us today, right? Uh, things may seem chaotic. Uh, things may seem like, you know, to some people that God's on vacation, but that's not the case, okay? He's in control, and he is uh, working, and he wants us to live faithfully where we are right here and now. And we always have to keep that in mind because, and, and there's nothing wrong with trying to study out the timelines and all that, but there's differences of opinions, and I think legitimately so, especially on that little horn here in the last part that we mentioned. There's no, there's no dispute on the first two because it's spelled out for us, right? The, the Medes and the Persians is the one, and, the, and the, king, the, the Greek kings and the first Greek king, and those are easy to identify historically. But what I want to do is say, well, what, what do we do with this stuff? How should this influence and affect our lives, okay? And I get to the first thing I want to mention is that seeing this fulfilled prophecy because we know at least most of this has already happened, even if you take the point that the little horn is later on in time. Most of this has already happened. We can have great confidence in looking back at what the Bible is saying is historically accurate, okay? And so as a believer, as a Christ follower, as a Bible-believing Christian, you should take great courage in that and, and, and just reinforce your confidence in what the Bible is saying is true, right? Which which. Here at Darby Creek, we uh, believe that the entire Word of God is inspired by God, right? Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed, right? It's breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All Scripture. So, you know, some people erroneously think that, well, certain parts of Scripture 
are true and other parts are, you know, are God's word and some of it's not. It's kind of like you have to figure out which part is really of the Lord, which part is really not. Well, you know, and that's what I call kind of cut and paste theology uh, or really it's kind of more of a God of your own making, okay? It's, it's really more of a God of your own making because having, uh, again, I, I don't know everything. I don't ever claim to know that, but I've done this long enough, been in ministry long enough, followed the Lord long enough that I know and have witnessed some people change their theological stance on something because they wanted to change how they lived. Not, you know, so in other words, they, they really, before they say, no, it's not right to do this because the Bible explicitly prohibits it or whatever. But then they change their stance on that, not because it was a gray area, but because now they're actually living that way and they want to be affirmed for that, but still be called a Christian. And so you just, I'm just saying that, you know, this is how in, we, Satan loves for this to happen. Um, and, and so when we see things like this happening in the Scripture, we see um, the historical um, authenticity, if you will, of the Scriptures. When, when the Scripture mentions history and it mentions archaeology, Archaeologists are all the time uh, confirming things that are mentioned in, uh, geographically in the scriptures. Uh, in fact, there's an entire magazine dedicated to this monthly called, you know, uh, Biblical Archaeology. I mean, it's just, uh, it's just fascinating. And so, um, let me, and so I, I just say this to say that you should be encouraged and all the more confident in what you're reading is the Word of God, okay? And, and... Um, but let me just ask you this, though. <clears throat> is every person needs to say, well, okay, so if I, if I do see this as the Word of God, and therefore it is authoritative, right, then am I placing myself under that authority of Scripture, or am I putting myself on top of the Scriptures and saying, well, I'll kind of live, live that way when it kind of fits my fancy and when it's not or do we really see and i'm not saying that we're not look i'm not saying that are we perfect or are we not that's not what i'm saying i hope you're not hearing that what i'm saying is what is your attitude towards the scriptures is it i'm saying what this says is the truth and that's the way it goes that's the way god intends for us to live and he will therefore empower us to live that way by his holy spirit um and and you know you can think about this you know is, it, is the way that you approach your worldview taken from this right here? Because as a Christian, it should be, because this is reality, okay? Um, now, if, here's the thing. If you have questions about these types of things, like, well, I don't, well, what about this in the Bible? What about that in the Bible? Or, you know, ask the questions. There are answers, okay? Uh, I haven't really had one uh, I've heard of apparent contradictions, but I haven't seen one that really bore out yet. In other words, there are, there are things that might to appear to conflict in the Scriptures, but can be explained, okay? And so um, just make sure that, you know, if, if you're following the Lord, that we do not govern our lives by our feelings, but by the truth of the Word of God, okay? That's a big difference, okay? Because I'll tell you what, there... If, if I live my life by my feelings, there would be a lot of things I'd probably be doing differently, right? Things that would not be in alignment with the Word of God. 
uh, would not honor God, would not please God. Uh, and so we, we cannot do that. I'm not saying you ignore your feelings, but, you know, faith comes before the feelings, okay? And so uh, just, just asking that as a question there, right, is, is if we believe that this is the Word of God and these, we see these fulfilled prophecies in the Scripture just remind us it's true, it's, it's right, it's authentic. We don't have some uh, cooked-up book here that somebody just wanted to suppress a group of people with or something like that, you know, whatever people might say. And so, but, you know, is our, are we living our lives by the book? That's the thing. And, and, and so I, I think that we should take great encouragement as believers that what we have here is the Word of God. It's authentic. Um, it's not, uh, you know, all these people, people have questions about translation and all that. I mean, if you've got questions, bring it, okay? Not today, but I'm just saying, if you've got questions, ask me. Um, we just don't have enough time. But there are, there are answers to your questions if you have questions about the authenticity of the Scripture, okay? Um, all right. Second thing I would say is uh, in this particular um, passage, how we might apply it is that God's word can prepare us for what is to come. What did the, what did the angel tell these, him to do with this, with this thing? He said, seal it up for a later time. And the way I'm looking at that, at least the way I see it, was 400 years later, those believers needed this. They needed to know this is going to happen. Hang in there. All hell's going to break loose, you know, but there will be an end to it, Right? And we need to know that now, too. We need to know that now, too, is that, you know, uh, things get bad for believers, religious freedoms if they go out the window, whenever. I'm, and I'm not saying that because of the election, by the way. I'm not saying, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, like, just if that happens, just, I'm just saying, if that happens, okay, then you just got to realize, hey, God is, God's in control, okay? Uh Believers all around the world are living without religious freedoms, okay? And I'm not saying you shouldn't fight for them, but, uh, uh, you know, legislatively and all that. But, hey, we're not guaranteed anything, uh, only what God gives us, okay? And, I, I, I mean, I, I, hope, I hope to God that they remain, okay? I hope we're able to openly preach the gospel. I hope we're able to preach the word without, uh, with boldness and without reprisal. But, but um, we just got to realize that... Um, God's word can prepare us for what is to come. And that it was meant to do so with God's people back then. It's meant to do so for people with us now. And so we need to, need to be people of the book, okay? Need to be people of the book, you know? I mean, uh, um, God will prepare our hearts and help us to endure, right? All right, last thing I want to mention here, just in closing, is that though evil may seem to rule the day, God is still in control and the great uh, theologian Yogi Berra said, it ain't over until it's over, okay? And just, just meaning that, hey, it may look really bad, but it's not over, right? Uh, the Lord's going to take care of us, and he will uh, be victorious in the end. And, you know, what happens in between, we don't know. We're not in control of. We just need God's help and his power to be faithful followers, right now, as long as we live. That's what we need. I mean, we can't, we can't worry about tomorrow. It doesn't do any good. We know that in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said it doesn't add a single day to your life. In fact, it probably takes away from your life if you worry, right? All right, so, all right, so um, let's pray.
Let's give thanks to the Lord for His Word here this morning. Lord, just thank you so much that you um, are in control and that um, we seeing fulfilled prophecy. Some of this stuff has already happened in history already. Uh, We are just so thankful that we have your Word. It's a comfort to us. It's a help to us. It's a it's, it's a, uh, we know who wins in the end help to us. And so, Lord, we're grateful for it. Lord, help us to treasure it. I, I just was, I was listening to an interview that Ann Graham Lotz gave uh, with someone on the radio and was just uh, impressed by her love for your word and how she just loved to spend time with the Lord Jesus, loved to spend time with him in his word and and hear him speak to her through the word. And, and just how uh, I was just so impressed. Lord, I say I want my relationship with you to be like that more and more. More and more. Just help us all, God, just to want to draw near to you through the scriptures, through your spirit, Lord. Uh, let us just, um, let us hunger and thirst for righteousness in our own lives. Uh, you promised that that would be satisfied if we did. Help us, Father to just fall more and more in love with the Lord Jesus and to more and more take in your word. Help us, Lord, to be a faithful witness to the world that we live in and help us, Lord, to remain under your word, that it is the authority. You do call the shots. Sometimes we get off course and think that we do. Lord, help us to repent if that's where we are now. Turn back to you. Just put ourselves under you, knowing that you have our best in mind. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.